Welcome to Ruthiology. Head over to ruthiology.org and check us out. <laughs> yeah, that was very similar, and I'm going to forget the woman's name who wrote The Power of Proximity and came and spoke to us. Michelle Warren. Yes. So very similarly, she ad- ad- identifies as an evangelical and has been called out publicly and um, asked to, I don't want to say asked to step down, but accused that she's not. And her, her position is, and she is very much about social justice and um, you know, w- working with the disenfranchised and creating opportunities for people that are disadvantaged or you know, have criminal records that are preventing them from uh, bettering themselves. And she's like, no, I am the evangelical. These people have hijacked it, and they are taking it to someplace it's not. She's like, so I, I'm going to stand and defend. I belong here. And I was proud of her for that. So right now we have four shout-outs, previous episodes, based on four speakers. <laughs> Michelle Warren, go take a listen to Power of Proximity. I forgot what episodes. Diana Thompson, who's a regular part of our community. She did a topic on the Compassionate Buddha, and then... Pamela Eisenbaum, Paul's not a Christian, and oh, Mark Bouchard. the Bi- the Bible. Um, what's uh, what, what was the, the t- something about the Bible? <laughs> what was the, what talk she did? Is the Bible true? That's right. Is go. the Bible That's true? Yes. And then we have Bouchard with evangelicalism. Oh no, one more. I had Stephen Booth Nadav. So there you go, five. And his was about that was so all in wonder. It was so long ago with with uh, So if you want to transform whatever your religious experience is, start a brew theology group. Because this is transforming our lives and experiences and understandings. And sitting down and having these conversations and exposing ourselves to wider views and bigger ideas is making a difference in how we, we approach the topics of what's going on in our culture right now. So I just want to encourage you to, to think about that and how you might be able to influence your community by starting a group and becoming part of the Brew Theology community. So Andy, back to uh, back to this quote. What do a church, a community, a sermon, a liturgy, a Christian life mean in a religionless world? Um, you know, honestly, I think that you know, not to get all weepy-eyed and everything here, but um, this group that we've met, the people that we've met through Brew Theology and so forth, I, I would say that this is probably a tighter community of people uh, than I have met in a long time. And you know, we've visited churches within the neighborhood here and so forth and sat through the oh so dry hymns and passing the bucket and all that kind of stuff so um you know i mean just from a religionless can so question two or question three do you think a religiousless blank let's call it community is possible are we not an example of one? We're doing it. <laughs> Are we doing it? Yeah. Is that what this is? You know, all we need is Diana here going, hey, Buddha, Buddha. She's here in spirit. Right. <laughs> so Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he paid the ultimate price for challenging the religious status quo and the church's relationship with the state. So where do we see this happening today? It doesn't have to be nationally or locally. It can be globally as well. And if you read the news, then... Perhaps there are a lot that transcend our city, state, Denver, Colorado. So this is not the state of Colorado, um, but this is a podcast that just started. It's called Caliphate, and it's by the same folks at the New York Times who've been doing The Daily, which is their daily podcast every weekday. Um, And they have been interviewing folks who have been recruited by ISIS and essentially kind of looking at the, the mentality behind how somebody gets wrapped up into that, how somebody gets pulled into that space. 
Um, and a lot of moderate Muslims, particularly in places like Syria and Iraq and Afghanistan, um, they're in this space right now where they're saying, I refuse to be part of a religion that is complicit with violence and with kind of dominance and state oppression. And they're being actively killed for it. And so I look at that and I look at a lot of Christians who have kind of the martyr complex who talk about woe is me. And I, I see a pretty stark difference between folks in the U.S. who may claim, claim to be, you know, paying the ultimate price or speaking up for their stances, particularly here in Littleton, Colorado, with cake shops and those kind of things about religious persecution. There's a, a big difference in where I see there's actually things on the line and, and what some Western Christians want to claim is kind of this sacrifice that's being taken there. Can we sort of agree? I mean, with the exception of like the examples of MLK, Malcolm X, uh, trying to think of some other examples that aren't coming to me off the top of my head. I mean, can we essentially agree that these stances, some of them are taking place in the U S based on people's personal circumstances. Like if they're taking a stand because in their community, it's unsafe to take a stand. But some of these larger stances, it feels like are happening in places that are more desperate than the U.S. But I, I'm also saying that as a middle class white dude who my situation is not very desperate. And I know there's desperate situations in the U.S., but it's it it does stand. Your example stands in stark contrast to, yeah, the uh, the, the the bakery in Littleton. I mean, we do have I, I mean, two come to mind for me. Um, Heather Meyer, Heather Heyer, I just looked it up and I got it wrong, um, who was killed in Charlottesville. I don't know her religious practice, but I mean, she was there to counter protest the Ku Klux Klan and she was killed for it. And um, we need to remember her name. And then a prominent Black Lives Matter activist, um, and I probably will say this wrong, Muhayidin Moya, uh, who I have friends on Facebook that know him was killed in new Orleans under suspicious circumstances, uh, for the work that he has been doing on the front of this fight in the United States. So there are people that are paying the ultimate price in our country. And I think, um, this isn't the ultimate price, but one thing I hear is, is families that are being disrupted by people. One member of the family saying, I'm not going to stand up for this and other members of the family saying, well, you're just crazy. And that ends up splitting the families and and people having to live alone and people having to live in the tension of, I can't have a conversation with my family about this because they'll disown me or they'll take away my, my funding or they'll kick me out of the house. And um, I know people that that's affecting. Um, I got to jump in and say, thank you for that reminder. Because I, I do think that, I sort of caught myself at the end saying I'm super middle-class and white and this is not my desperation because it's not my situation, but that's a really good reminder that this is absolutely people's situation right here at home. Well, and I think we could, while it's not specifically religious um, name, so many people that have black people that have been killed in our country. um, There are both lists of males and females that have been killed in simple circumstances where they could have very easily have lived had things been different. And so I think we have to stand with black lives matter matter in the middle of this. Um, many, many of those people are believers in Christ and are not being heard. Um, and that fight is costing them their lives. I was going to say that there is a physiological impact. Um, so there was an article, I think it was in the Atlantic, 
but talked about um, infant mortality and maternal mortality with mm -hmm. black women in the black US. Um, and somebody even like Serena Williams, who is, you know, a millionaire athlete, has a lot of access, um, almost died giving birth. And they talk about stress and they talk about how constantly being treated as a second class citizen. And when you add, you know, people who are people of faith speaking against that, that the stressors on people's body is literally killing them. Um, so it's not kind of a direct, I'm going to stand up and get shot for it, but there's still a, a very heavy toll that's being, uh, being felt particularly by women of color. Um, and there is, yeah. there's statistical data that is Absolutely. backing this up. And we, so one of the pushbacks we would hear from the right is that, well, the, this isn't, this is, these aren't religious issues. Bullshit. <laughs> these are religious issues because what Ryan read to us in Isaiah, Isaiah 61 and Luke four says that we are to be in the middle of this. We are to stand in the middle of this with them for them and advocate for them. If we are claiming the name of Christ. And so these are religious issues. And when we ignore systemic violence, when we ignore systemic racism, discrimination by gender discrimination against LGBTQ folks, we are, um, giving into these state complicity of oppression, and we are not acting out the religious things that we claim to believe by following Christ or following even our conscience. We have to put our bodies in that space and do those things. Um, and so I think I think you're right in state. Like we don't have like a million of these stories right now necessarily, but but that's part of that's because the way they're being covered sure. like hides them up. And it's just it that in itself is part of the problem. And then when the government is saying, oh, the, the media is part of the problem, it makes it even harder to tell these stories. Yeah, often when, when you think of in old Christian terms, like the ultimate price of Bonhoeffer, mm -hmm. and not to downplay that at all, belittle that, but we do think of like, oh, I'm not a martyr, you know, I've, I, I live, you know. I'm middle class, right? White guy, everything's comfortable, but yet to lose the people who have lost their tribe. And we talk about this all the time mm -hmm. in previous episodes, like losing your tribe is sometimes, at least if, you, if you're dead, you're dead, right? So, but if you're alive and dead, losing your tribe, family members who won't go to your, to your wedding, if you're gay, who not just won't go to your wedding, but won't speak to you anymore. And I think I mean, I can, I can speak for people that I know that that's happened to them. I mean, and I'm sure we can all think of, of examples like that, but I think I've never had that personally. I think that I, while I have drifted a little bit more, if you want to label left progressive, sure. And my, my parents and, and people in my family are more conservative. They still love me and accept me, but there are others who don't have, they, they don't have that. Um, it's, it's a, I guess that's a blessing, right? That my parents still love me and accept me no matter how liberal I am. We talked about actually at my at my table last last week during the conversation. We talked about economic death in the context of this conversation. So, like standing up for a certain, um, taking a certain stance mm -hmm. that you essentially know would dim diminish your opportunity for employment. Or, um, I mean, so we we talked about death in other contexts. I, I think that's a good point. Like. Um, and yeah, you, you know, if you all of a sudden are seen as the, the guy that's kind of woohoo out there, you know, there's a certain amount of right, like you said, community that, that just goes, nope, I'm, you know, blocking you out and, or some, you know, economics, which, 
Um, we're in the capitalist U.S., so how do you ignore exactly. that? Exactly, and uh, you know, not poor me or anything, but there are certain types of churches that back in the day I could have worked for. Now I probably will not have a snowball's chance in hell. <laughs> probably not. And that's okay. Too many podcasts. Okay. <laughs> I am eternally archived on the interwebs. <laughs> Janelle, so are you. Yeah, we should probably think about that <laughs> someday. I still love Jesus, people. I'm just saying. Yeah. And he still loves us. Like, that's the reality. Um, and he walks with any of us that are doing this work on the front lines and trying to make a difference. Like, he is right there with us. And I, that sounds so simple, but I think it's something we need to say. Like, Christ is there with us in our objections and in our ability to use the privilege represented around this table to stand up for people and say stop. Um, and as you were talking, Rob, I mean, like, this comes close to home when you talk to big companies that are trying to make a difference in this conversation and they're doing diversity and bias training or trying to promote women into STEM. The white guys that are stepping up to do that work do not do that without a consequence. And that's, I'm not trying to like, don't feel sorry in that sense. Like, that's not what I mean. But what I'm trying to say is like, like this does come with a cost. It may come with a promotion cost. It may come with a raise cost. And so this, this work is not benign. Um, when you, even when you just want to speak truth to power, that may have permanent consequences on your ability to do the work you do. Um, and so we, I mean, we totally recognize that this doesn't come without a cost. Um, it just depends on, you know, what part of that work that you're doing. Um, I mean, if you don't know any activists, if this is a little new to you, um, I know a couple and they basically live on the support of, of people just like we do. So, I mean, they're essentially trying to find people that believe in the work they do. They may have a Patreon or something similar, like where they're, they're trying to, they're funding their lives because of the work they do and people that believe in the work they do. And that is terrifying to me. Um, it, maybe it's not for them, but maybe it is. But they, they believe so strongly in standing in the gap in a place like Charlottesville, in a place like uh, Berkeley, when the conservative um, speakers were coming like they believe so strongly that their body and their presence needs to be there that that is their life and um and this is the real deal <laughs> you know that if you hear rumors that they're paid by some token liberals somewhere i don't i if you find those liberals I'd would you let us the know George paycheck i would we, love to see it <laughs> just let us all know because we'd love to have any of some of the stuff we do funded Andy, you're a paid actor right now come on we paid you a Absolutely. shitload to write this content sure and put it out sure there for everybody did. to hear so i guess a question based off of number four and kind of what you're just saying janelle um, oftentimes, and I hear it more in evangelical spaces and other spaces, but people talk about a Bonhoeffer moment. Like, is this the Bonhoeffer moment? Is this the point when you put it all out there? Um, and I'm curious if y'all have heard that language before. Mm -hmm. yeah. And where where do you think that that would fit? Like, what is that moment, if there is a moment in 2018 in our context, that there is kind of that moral obligation to say, yes, I'm going to resist. And I know we use that like resist language a lot culturally, but like this, this is kind of a different level of resistance. I'm curious, like, do you, do you think there is that moment? What would it take? I think you participate in that moment when you're standing up for immigrants that 
need protection. At, at the same time, like when I'm standing up at a protest or, you know, accompanying people at court, worst case scenario, I may get arrested and spend the night in jail and get bailed out. So, but um, Andy, that's Andy not if, the same if that thing. happened with me, right, then I wouldn't have anybody to stay home and watch my my kids. Right. So it's a part of me that goes, man, may, may. at some point when the kids are older and they're in school, then I can go to jail. I don't know. <laughs> but there, that's that's why, and, I mean, I, I would love to join you, but there's a part of me that goes, man, the cost for me is my wife's working crazy hours and someone's got to watch the kids. So Miguel de la Torre, another plug, by the way, mm-hmm. told me a while back off the record that it's okay, there are seasons for um, you know your spiritual journey, absolutely. So I, I feel better because Miguel told me that. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I look at what you're doing. I go, man, like I, I wish I would have been doing more of that when I was single, and then you know, even even married without kids for the first eleven years. Yeah, I applaud you, Janelle and I. We all applaud you. Yeah, I I don't need applause. I know we you know don't. That. And Bonhoeffer didn't either, and he didn't. Either. I'm definitely not Bonhoeffer either. But you're but. You're not Lutheran, but it's a so risk. What? I mean, it's still a risk. Mm-hmm. The church could decide that that's too risky to have you in jail. True, story. and then that's your livelihood. And then Denver prices price you out in about two months. So, <laughs> true <Yeah>. story. <laughs> um, so, and I do, but so I do wonder about this. So, so looking back at the, in the context, because last week we we found ourselves saying, let's put ourselves in post World War One, and we're decimated. We've been annihilated. Germany looks awful. There's no jobs. No money. Yeah, you have this charismatic leader who rises up saying never again and creates make a Germany perfect, great again. Right. Exactly. It but it makes some think about it. We laugh we laugh at that a bit with our, our current Make America Great, but we have no idea. I mean, we really don't. Make America Great versus making Germany great are it's like that's night and day. I think in a way, we probably all would have jumped on, maybe not all of us, but it, it would have been intriguing to jump on the Nazi Hitler bandwagon because I don't want to, man, my, like the stories that my parents and grandparents told me, and I'm a young person trying to make it. So let's get rid of these Jews who are taking our jobs. Again, we hear that today, but it's different. I think it's very, because America didn't go through what, what post world war one Germany went through. And I say all this, I'm trying to be devil's advocate because I think we finally around the table said, yeah, we, we may have all been guilty. And even if we weren't a part of the, the Nazi you know, military locking people in, you know, I don't even want to go there right now because it's so awful to think about, but we should remember it. I still think we would just kind of let it happen and we would turn the other way, whatever it takes. Well, it's it's interesting though, to think about, like, I, I agree. I don't, and I don't know if there's a way for, I don't know if there's a way for us to compare anything to post-World War, post-Great War Germany. But, um, I do. I mean, we, a lot of us have spent a lot of time thinking about, particularly I'm from Iowa. I've spent a lot of time thinking about what is it about rural white folks that they, I mean, it's sort of, there's a desperation that feels like it's coming through with that rural white vote. That's like, where is my piece of the pie? And, 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 uh, and, and I'm not, I'm not advocating that I'm not advocating that they're, that I think that uh, their sound and their thinking or reasoning, but um, I think you could find, you could go to the middle of nowhere, Iowa, you could go to the middle of nowhere, Illinois, Indiana, South Dakota, wherever uh, it's sort of in the, the middle part of the country or rural Americans and ask people. And I think people have felt, have felt not sure it's, it's uh, 
reasoned and um, well, I'm quite certain it's not reasoned and um, and uh, sound, but I feel like I don't have any economic ladder to climb. There's no jobs here. Um, there's no, and so it's interesting that that seems to me to be sort of the closest comparison between make Germany great again and make America great again. But again, yeah. I, to your point, I don't think it's as desperate of situation. Um, yeah. There's, but there's opioid addicted Americans. Sure. And, sure. Yeah. I, I guess my pushback. So I think of immigration. Um, so the St. Louis was a ship full of European Jews that came to the U S that was turned away at the border mm-hmm. because of America first policies. Um, and the language used was the exact same. And so when yeah. I see Syrians fleeing violence in the Middle East, it being turned away at the border. When I see people from Guatemala or Honduras who are being turned away at the border, fleeing violence, like I have a hard time not saying, hey, the desperation of those people fleeing violence yep. in the Northern Triangle is the exact same desperation of European Jews and of gypsies and Roma and the folks who are fleeing. Nazi so then would, would you specifically house them knowing that you would be not just put in prison, but I mean, be put to the, the gas chambers or whatever that would be today? If, if I had space, would I house them? I mean, sure. I, the reality is I do work with churches that are illegally housing undocumented people. I, are, are they going to go to prison? If they get caught, that's a federal offense. Yeah. You, I mean, it, the likelihood of it happening is much lower yeah, because has, of PR. Yeah, because I'm curious like, wh- what pastors and churches went to, have gone to prison in the last how many years? And it hasn't. So back in the 80s, there were, I think it was 22 folks who faced federal charges for things like smuggling, um, trafficking. They were helping undocumented people come to the States. And it hasn't happened since then because the PR was so bad. So I, I don't think there's a moral reason they're not doing it. I don't think there's a, oh, that's too bad, so we're not going to do it. I think it's, this is horrible press. And so it's better for us not to go after pastors who are um, harboring people or allowing people to stay in their churches and space. I, I don't think there's a moral reason. I don't think we're any more moral now than in Nazi Germany with how we make the decisions. I just think it's pragmatism. And I'm also super cynical, so I'll, I'll own that. So just follow up on what Rob was saying as well, is that to your point, and middle America and other parts of America that have been bought into the anti-immigration position that is so... Um, public and loud in our culture right now is that people are blaming the immigrants and really it's like the reason you're losing your job has nothing to do with the immigrants. The reason you're losing your job is, is, is the corporations. It's, I mean, it is, it, it's corporate greed, it's corporate, um, right, and it, it's all business. So, and people are just changing the, the, the focus, distracting them from what the real issue is. And many of those people are just trying to survive. They're just trying to pay the bills. They're trying to put food on the table. And when you're trying to survive and trying to put food on the table, you don't have time to think about this. And you don't have time to analyze what's happening around you. And when you come home, you don't want to read through the New York Times with your beer. You just want to drink your beer and watch the fireflies. And... um, and there's nothing wrong. I mean, there's, but ultimately, like, let's, there's nothing wrong with that. Even if it is Rush Limbaugh. Like, you're coming home, you want to feel affirmed, you want to feel like in the midst of all of this, I mean, failure that you feel, that you're not a failure. And there's somebody, there's some voice telling you that. And why wouldn't you listen to that? If you feel like a failure from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed and someone tells you you're doing great, it's not your fault, it's all the fault of this or that, blame this, blame that. Like, 
I get it. And so then the, the way to counteract that, maybe our quote-unquote Bonhoeffer moment isn't that we die in a gas chamber. It's that we take time and, and our privilege and our finances and we go out there and say, how can I help? Um, like Craig does at the table. Like they plant gardens all over Denver and give the food away. That's the seventh plug tonight. That's yeah. right. <laughs> well, and on an individual level, it's not a, it's not necessarily a failure. I, I, that resonates with me on a, on a systems level. And I know Absolutely. you, I know you feel the same way. It's, it is a complete and utter failure at, at a systematic level. Um, Let's but, poke but at this. Okay. Level. Veterans, veterans are screwed in this country. Okay. They, they give, they come out of many, many times they come out of these communities. They put their life on the line. They put their mental health on the line. Often they come home and their bodies are not whole. Their minds are not whole. And the, re the response of the government is, we'll give you the shittiest health care that we can possibly come up with. And if you're struggling to feed your family or can't find work because the skills aren't transferable, well, sorry. Just pull yourself up by your boots, perhaps, and make it work because you can wear a flag and, and have a license plate that says I'm a vet. And I don't mean any disrespect to vet. I have two vets in my family, and I am disgusted by the way that the, the government who calls them to serve does not care for them. There should never be a question about a vet needing full medical care and mental health support where they live in their town, period. They should be able to get that at the drop of a hat. And, and so we have, like, those are the kinds of things that these, these systems fall apart in. I'll take a, a bit of a counterposition there, being a vet myself and having two son-in-laws that are, uh, one, still in active duty. Um, we've got to start, we have to stop relying on the government. Yeah. This is where community comes in. Okay. These young men, and, you know, I'm not going to even go into my positions and beliefs on why the hell they're across or overseas fighting these damn wars. Okay. Let's not even go there. They're doing it. Okay. And they are coming back and they're coming back broken. The government's not going to save them. It's not the VA administration that's ever right, going to put right. them back together, whether that be mentally, physically, financially, or anything else. It's going to be a family. It's going to be a community. It's going to be people, local people that connect heart to heart that are actually going to put them back together. Okay. One of the reasons that the Veterans Administration is, is failing is because they've eliminated that idea. Hey, come on back. We'll take care of you. They can't. Yep. They can't. You could go sit and, you know, I know you're very passionate about mental uh, mental health and those kinds of things. Uh, I've known some people very closely that are, that have, um, you know, some issues and um, they could sit with a hundred psychiatrists and it's never going to be as effective as a connected, right. very involved community standing around them, supporting them, helping them. Yeah. So not to blow your no, argument no, out of I the water, but I think it's it's very important. I think it proves the point in in some way because I think that there's this um, 
cultural understanding that right. that when you serve, then you will be taken care of. And the truth is, this this totally dismantles that. It's not happening. So what are the solutions? And my dad's talked about after the World Wars, there were the VFWs. And that's where mostly men went to discuss these things. And, and that's drink. where they had those conversations and drink. But they had that that community developed around them, and the problem is right now that hasn't happened for the vets of Iraq and Afghanistan in right. the same way, and so they're kind of left hanging. The, the GI Bill was a huge part too of post World War II and post World War II uh, return for vets. I mean, GI Bill changed higher ed forever, and we of course have the post nine eleven GI Bill now, but it's not. It's different than the national sentiment after World War II. I, I, yeah. You know, this kind of goes back to, and I, I, I don't know, I just, I kind of have a thing for this, but, um, um, you know, whether it's veterans, whether it's, you know, Christians, whether it's Republicans, whether it's Democrats, whatever else, I don't know, there just seems to be this, this uh, need within our society today for somebody else to tell me what to think and how to act and what to believe and all these other kinds of things. Whatever happened to, you know, trust, but question, mm. you know? So, so maybe that religionless Christianity that Bonhoeffer's talking about is that community of support is I'm going to sit here and listen to your story and just be present through this. Um, I, I've, my buddy, David, um, he talks about how meds for him are a means of grace how community and people showing me as a means of grace. And so he's not talking about communion. He's not talking about the kind of the dogmatic language we use. He's saying that that is that that space of deep connection and caring and intimacy. Um, and yeah, I I think that's what Bonhoeffer's getting at here is we're not talking about a faith that has all these other things, requirements. It's that deep personal, I'm going to sit with you. I'm going to be present, whether you're struggling with mental illness or a physical injury or any of those things. Um, I. I think that's what he's getting at here. And I know we're picking on religion here, but you know what? Quite honestly, if you put a political persuasion mm -hmm. around this situation, if you put a, a, a socioeconomic persuasion around this situation here or whatever else, I mean, we're picking on religion. But quite honestly, any group that you walked into that espoused these ideas, wouldn't you just... I mean, you'd want to put a boot up their ass. I mean, you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> right, I mean, it's right. like, what? I don't care if you're a church or a social club. How can you believe this stuff? This is probably more of a question than anything else, right? Like the community thing, the community, the community aspect of religion. I mean, is that like you said, Andy, and maybe I'm, and if I'm really torturing what you just said, then call me out. But, uh, you know, the, the, um, I mean, is religionless Christianity essentially like community without religion? Uh, would, that's a good question. I, so I was not there for Tad's talk either, but I've read Tad's book and I've talked with him. Um, I, I think to not get too Bible-y, but when I think of, you know, it talks about the, the crucifixion, it talks about how the temple, the current of the temple tears and there's nothing behind it. And this kind of big other is not real, that this other thing that we rely on to give us meaning is not real. And so, yeah, like I think that idea of the community of a people of a common cause of this deep commitment to the same thing, um, whether it be economic justice or living in solidarity, um, I, I do think that's what it's all about, in my opinion. And 
if we call it Christian, great. Do I see that in Christ? Yes. Um, does that mean that Christianity has kind of a monopoly on that? I would say absolutely not. I don't know if that actually answers your question, but that's kind of, that's where your, your question made me kind of think was, it is about the community. There, there's an obligation. The Holy Spirit is empowering us to do these things. And I, I'm talking very Jesus-y, very Christian, um, and I'll own that. And I'm sure other traditions have different interpretations of how that all works. But yeah, for me, as a, as a professed follower of Christ, I think it's all about the community. Absolutely. And you just mapped Tad's, because uh, Tad's discussion about the big other mm-hmm. and that, that Christ is the big other for some people. Absolutely. Okay. And the big other takes a lot of forms in different cultures. Absolutely. And- mm-hmm. The big other may be the idea of the American nation state. The big other that's going to give us comfort Consumerism. and security. Consumerism. Capitalism. Standard of living. Yeah. Those can all be that which we give up most importance to allow to give us yeah. purpose and meaning. Yeah. But I think when we do that, we, we miss the point. I think it is about the interplay of uh, the Holy Spirit moving within all of us or the divine moving with all of us and, and our, our dependence and reliance and, and depth of experience with each other. And I think what's sad is that um, many of us have come out of the church and by doing that, we lost our community, our primary community. And then that leaves you wandering. And we very much need community in whatever we want to support or do and so it's, it's interesting to me that when we're born and raised in a tradition that is kind of like inherent community, that at least that's what we're told, how come we don't have the skills or abilities to go replicate that when we leave? I mean, and I think we do inherently, but we've been told that you can't have this unless you're in this building or with this group of people. And that's a pretty sad social control right there when um i mean i remember growing up there was a community church in my town and we always made fun of them they're just a social club well you know what maybe they had something right maybe maybe that was an important part of their life together and they included jesus in that instead of making jesus the only way to find that. I don't know if this is the eighth plug of the night or not. (laughs) (laughs) Paula Williams. She may have been our first, she was our first speaker in person on the podcast, but she said, I, and I asked her in my, so Paul, by the way, Paula Williams, previously Paul Williams, pastor at left hand church right now. And also was a huge mega church, evangelical pastor, and had this uh, like and is a TEDx pretty, speaker. Oh, TEDx speaker. Yeah, she she's a she's a pretty big deal. And and Paul previously uh, was even bigger. And so I when I was trying to get my mind wrapped around uh, this transgender idea of faith, and I had said, okay, what can I do as a straight white dude? And she's like, be an ally, be an ally. And then two weeks ago, you know, we were we were sitting at the same table. And we heard the same thing from our from our last speaker, and so um, she said, "Accomplice, accomplice, yes, yeah, accomplice." And so, but to do that, we have to, to get one into proximity, yeah, and we have to be in community with people that are different than us, and we have to we have to prioritize those things above other things that we're doing, and sometimes yeah. that takes a lot of choice and energy. Well, and as uh, I won't speak for you, Ryan, but for me, 
a, a, sort of like uh, examining my own like privilege, middle class, straight, white dude stuff. I also have to be willing to just shut up and listen, uh, which is it's hilarious. It's actually I want to laugh at it coming out of my mouth, but I have to shut up and listen. Yeah. And, and that's how with Dr. Leith, the last two episodes. Mm-hmm. Boom, number eight. No, yeah, yeah. Well, she, yeah. So the last, the last speaker, uh, she talked about being an accomplice, and so I, I, I have, I have to listen, and I have to read these books and understand this culture that I don't get. Um, and I, and I feel like I'm this, you know, this progressive, yay, look at me guy, but I go, I know nothing about this culture at all because it's not my culture. Last question, and then we're gonna call it a night. So why, why do you think that these terms like religionless Christianity? And spiritual but not religious, SBNR, are so triggering for so many who identify as part of an established religious tradition. And some of us have actually worked and are still working in established religious traditions. So some of us may be able to speak about this. The spiritual but not religious, because that was one of the tags that I identified with for a long time and still do, actually. And um, somebody at the table is like, yeah, but, you know, it's a diss. And, you know, she was right. It is. It's uppity. It's like, yeah, I'm spiritual, but I, I don't. I'm not tied down by all your dogma baggage and all of those crazy verses that really are, you know, separatist and racist and sexist and all those types of things. And so it is. It's uppity. It's it's a bit. It's you know. I think when you're inside the fishbowl and you hear these terms, you're you are generally worried that they don't have the truth. Like that, that the people that are saying those things don't know the truth and they're not saved and they're not going to heaven and they're not experiencing life to the fullness. And I get that perspective. Um, but I think that they would be better off if they would just sit and listen and hear the story and hear why I have that label and why you telling me I need Jesus isn't going to fix that. Um, and and really hear my experience of your religion and why that doesn't work for me. And then that opens the door to having conversations and interactions that might bring you to the table together. So as somebody who works for an institution, um, a particularly a more progressive mainline institution, I think it has a lot less to do with care about saving souls and more to do with just pragmatics and um so for example like our metrics for vitality are things like affirmations of faith our membership our baptisms of are things that are are quantifiable or easy to quantify say 50 years ago but you know an affirmation of faith doesn't fit if you're spiritual not religious church membership may not does not carry the same weight that it did 50 years ago um baptism may never happen if you're spiritual not religious and so i think part of it we just don't know what to do with it and it doesn't fit our metrics, and so it's easier to just kind of ignore it and push it out. Um, and that, once again, super cynical. But yeah, I don't uh, think no, it has to do with, with, oh, I deeply care about your soul. I think it's, I want to count you somehow in my congregation so that I can, you know, prove that I have church growth within my ministry mm-hmm. or my church is vital. Yeah. I mean, that was definitely in my church tradition. I had to be able to count how many people that I saved, how many people that it helped bring to sell, sell, or sanctification, and, and I needed to answer that number every year. And there was real fear if you only had a number like two, you know, which in reality, like a number like two, 
was significant. Yeah. I mean, it's when you can't count it, you can't charge for it. So. So how much of this ultimately has to do with capitalism? Because if you think about how, I mean, even the idea of like count, counting baptisms, if you're, well, especially if you're Baptist, those who sprinkle, that's a different story. But even that matters because count. if you're, because if you're, but if you're, but if you're sprinkling, that means that like mom and dad are at least engaged. So that, that matters too. But I mean, ultimately like n- numbers, I mean, it, that, that's a capitalistic gain. So it's like back in the day, I kind of wonder if. I know that the Bible says that this many people were, you know, were saved and this, th- there are numbers in the Bible, but I just, I don't, I don't know if they had the same depth weight as they do today, but, but okay. So back, back to the original question is, is, is capitalism to blame because it's married and religion's married to it. No, we are because we allowed it in. I mean, our religion has become capitalist, our capitalism has become religious, our politics has become infiltrated by all of it. I mean, this, is, this, this comes back to the very identity of an American, right? I mean, I was raised in a tradition where the entire history of humanity was the Old Testament, the New Testament, and the American, uh, American history, right? Nothing else exists. And you get into, you know, the 70s, 80s, the me generation and stuff. Capitalism is absolutely tied into all of it. It is. And especially because I did, you mentioned it earlier. I grew up in that prosperity doctrine. You know, if you weren't healthy, fit, and wealthy, there was something wrong with you. You weren't a very good Christian. Tink Tinker. Shout out number whatever of the night. <laughs> talked about talked about That's awesome. <laughs> spatial versus temporal, right? And like and uh Richard from the neighborhood here who comes uh, a lot of weeks, he told me this. I've never seen it with my my two eyes because I haven't read Christopher Christopher Columbus's biography or his writings of arriving in uh in the new world. And he tells me that there's a passage essentially written in there that says these, these people are so full of love in the West Indies. We'll take them in like two days. Yeah. It's, they're so believing and so trusting that it will be easy to exploit them. Like that's literally what Columbus was saying was we can take over this because they're going to trust us because they think that people are good. That is sort of the Euro, that Euro background is what, particularly in the U S what we come from, right? There's, there wasn't, uh, there wasn't this respect for the land and, and spatial community. And so, I mean, yeah, I mean, but guess what? It goes back to religion, manifest destiny or jump back to Rome. I mean, we, we had absolute jurisdiction over this earth to exploit and do whatever we wanted to. And it was that right was given given to us by God. Yeah, I mean, if, if you go all the way to Roman times, why did the Roman Empire become the Holy Roman Empire? It, it was easier to mollify the masses and bring them together under religion. And it was easier to, you know, get more tariffs from outlying colonies. It was easier to bring in resources into the Roman Empire by globbing onto Christianity. So, I mean, it it goes way, way back. I Yeah. Well, and it's lived out in, in American history in the revivals. Uh, I think it was Charles Finney. I might be wrong, but said, "Give me a, a tent on a 
a, a decent night with enough candles and some lighting and some music and I'll bring I'll save everybody in the room and um, that that was often behind many of these sweeping revivals was to bring America back to the foundation bring them back to Jesus put their bums back in the church and um, that is that is in the fabric of who we are as American Christians the question why does spiritual but not religious freak out Christians, whereas secular Jew is way is, more normalized yeah. and is way more accepted? And I, and I say that as somebody who has a lot of secular Jews in my family, like there is, there isn't a resistance or hesitance, at least in my family and my experience with the Jewish community, towards secular Jews or people who may tie into the the cultural values of Judaism without the, the dogma of Judaism. Why don't they freak out as much as Christians do? Is it is it partially because they're not centralized, and so that became okay? I, I have a few, I have a thought that it's probably the Holocaust. I mean, the context that we're speaking of right now. <laughs> Come on, I mean, you go through that. Your grandparents tell you stories about that. Your parents. Why would you believe? So, I mean, in a way, and and, and please excuse this if you have issues with this, but fuck God in this scenario. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Protest the Odyssey. Yeah, exactly. This is this is the issue with with God. Well, and Andy, I, you say far more normalized. I mean, normalized to who? To us here sitting here who have Christian right. backgrounds, right. or to my Jewish grandmother? I, I, I would say it's wasn't my very ner- normalized to her. Okay. Yeah. We got depressed last week at our table at the end, and I feel like we're getting there now. It's so it, we better it, stop. Is it the alcohol that's depressing us? No, no, no. I'm feeling not great. this. Uh, so do we have any any kind of final thoughts, questions, or this was this? By the way, this was such a different conversation than the one that I had last week at my table. Can I? Yeah, likewise. Can, likewise. How about you? Mine had some overlap. Yeah, yeah, some overlap, but this was different than my conversation at the table. Yeah, we had some overlap. I think it was good. I think it's just, I'm, I'm going to go back to um, your thoughts on community. I think it's important when we're talking about these kinds of terms and we're talking about our faith in this way to do it in community. And when we do it in community, we make connections about what does it mean to be human and what does it mean to walk through this world and and what does it mean, you know, he talks here without the temporally conditioned presuppositions of metaphysics, inwardness, and so on, how do we um, move forward in a sense of faith or belief without all of the baggage? And, and that's done in community. I don't see any other way to do that. Because when it's done alone, we, we often get bitter or we quit. But when we do it in community, I'm forced every week to come to the table and and be respected for what I bring to the table, but to do it with others. And I, I really like that concept. And be accepting of what's right. brought to the table. Yeah. Some resources here, which we fail to do this often. For you listeners, Andy has Dietrich Bonhoeffer's Letters and Papers from Prison. Also, Reggie Williams wrote Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus and Jeffrey Pugh, by the way, Jeffrey Pugh uh, wrote an end times book for homebrew Christianities. Yes, he did. Guide to the end times. It was fun. And it's called Religionless Christianity, Bonhoeffer in Troubled Times. So thanks for listening. If you like this, you should share it. Also go to iTunes, rate it, review it. Five stars is nice. You know, if you give us a four, at least give us a review that's kind. 
I've also I've I've often like I've I've read reviews that are fours. I'm like, why this guy put a four? He clearly is a five. I'm just saying, you can be a five even if you if it's a nice review. Anything else they can do? Patreon. That's nice. Yeah. So thanks everybody. Thank you. Andy, Janelle, Peace. Rob, yeah, Kelly and Eric. So this was Cheers. fun. Peace. Thank you. Peace. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.